Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome to the Business of Healthcare podcast, where I will be sharing interviews, insights, project management, leadership trainings and lessons learned from the field of healthcare to improve the delivery of your projects and business performance. Welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you're all well. So I know I always say this, but today I really did have the absolute pleasure of interviewing Dr. Simon Tobin. Simon is a GP, GP partner. He's a GP trainer. He's involved in Park Run and is just absolutely fantastic. I absolutely loved interviewing him. We talked about his approach to lifestyle medicine, what he loves about being a partner how his practice is supporting those with type 2 diabetes through lifestyle and exercise and how he's working with his patients to help them reverse the condition. He talked about one of their practice's biggest struggles at the moment and that was recruitment but we also talked about what is working really well and he attributes investing the time every day to have coffee and a drink and a catch up with his partners and his staff which he says he can appreciate that where practices are so busy, but that that is a priority for them. And that has built a support mechanism, trust and develop their shared values. I would love it if you liked and shared this interview on our social media channels. You can find us at THC Primary Care on Twitter and you can find me, Tara Humphrey, on LinkedIn. And I look forward to sharing the next episode with you. So hi, Simon, and thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. Thank you very much. So we recently went to the Royal College of General Practitioners annual conference in Liverpool a few weeks ago, and you were speaking on a panel around, I think it was partnership in general practice, and you spoke so passionately about it, and you spoke about what you're doing around lifestyle medicine and how you're involved in Park Run, and I was like... I need to get you on the podcast. So thank you again. So could you give our listeners just a little bit of an introduction to what you do, your experience and where your kind of passion and interest lie? So I trained down in London at what's now Imperial, moved up to Southport nearly 30 years ago in the northwest, just north of Liverpool. Um, and I've been a GP in the same practice, my training practice for the last 25 years. Um, I'm a GP trainer. Um, and as you mentioned, I've, I've developed a passion for lifestyle medicine over the last, uh, the last few years. It's really grabbed me and, it, and excited me, not just the physical activity um, size, but also the diet. Um, and that's really just been fascinating and kind of reinvigorated my, my career and my passion, really. What is lifestyle medicine? I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's difficult. It probably means different things to, to different people. To, to me, it's about not reaching for the medication first line. It's about exploring options with your patients about other alternatives. And, and I see so many people who, whose issues aren't going to be sorted with a tablet. They have to do with perhaps poverty. They have to do with poor nutrition, with being overweight, being socially isolated. And the solutions for those may well lie in, in what people call lifestyle medicine, in, in getting together with other people, getting a bit more active, thinking about better nutrition. So I, I, yeah, that's kind of what lifestyle medicine means for me. 
And how do you initially, how do patients respond when they come to you and they, they kind of want a pill and you don't give them that? Do they like it? Are they surprised? Are they shocked? I don't find myself in that situation very often. Sometimes people come expecting a pill, but quite often what happens is we talk about options and, I, and I'm very much against telling people what to do. And I see my job as a GP perhaps to, to listen to understand, hopefully to be empathetic, and to talk to people about, about what options might be available. And when I offer my patients with perhaps mildly elevated blood pressure or whose diabetes is a bit out of control, the choice between going on a tablet that's likely to be lifelong or perhaps losing some weight, looking at their diet, doing a bit more physical activity, almost invariably people choose lifestyle options over tablets. And we, we, as I said, we just reach for the medication too soon when actually lifestyle medicine is probably the best medication that we can be prescribing. And across your practice, do you all share that kind of same approach? Yes, to a varying degree. I'm kind of a card-carrying enthusiast. And myself and my now ex-partner, David Unwin, who's really championed dietary advice and low-carb diets for people with diabetes, we're both passionate evangelists for lifestyle medicine. But I think all, all the doctors at the practice, we're all preaching from the same hymn sheet. So how did you become involved in Parkrun? Okay, so I've been a runner for about 15 years. And about three and a half years ago, my local park run was set up in a nearby park right in the middle of my practice area, which was fantastic. And I'm one of the organizers on the core team. And within a couple of weeks of just seeing what could happen there, I, I just felt so excited by the potential that Parkrun had to deliver um, some amazing, you know, some amazing differences to, to people's health. I saw people down there with diabetes, with heart disease, with high blood pressure. I saw people there with uh, mental health issues, with depression. And when you just get chatting to people and you just say, what, what difference does this make to you? You know, has this had an impact on your life? And time and time again, people were telling me, my patients were telling me, this is making a difference. And you know, not one to look a gift horse in the mouth, I started thinking, well, maybe we could join this up a little bit more with the stuff that I do at the surgery. So I started to refer, you know, informally my patients, I started saying, had you thought about coming down to the local park run? So I drew up a flyer, just an information sheet. And that's how it really began. But here we are three years later, I've now taken down maybe 150 of my patients down to the park run. And it's made a difference to a number of people's lives. It's excellent. So what impacts have you seen? Are you seeing less, those repeat people that would come into the surgery less? Like what difference is it making that you can see? I think one of the difficulties is, is measuring difference. I know it makes a difference and I've seen it and my patients have seen it. But it's sometimes hard to sort of bang out numbers to, to prove it. So, for example, Kelly, who's given me consent, and anybody that I talk about has given me consent to share their story. So Kelly, a visually impaired patient of mine, she's been blind since birth, had never run outdoors until about three years ago when we were chatting in a consultation and she was fed up with her exercise class. And she was fed up because 
while they went for a warm-up at the, the start of the class, they put her on the rowing machine because they were worried about her bumping into stuff and falling over. And she felt a bit patronised by that, and that was putting her off doing some exercise. But to cut a long story short, I invited her down to Southport Park Run, picked her up and guided her for her first park run, as I said, three years ago. Since then, she's now become a regular. She's done over 100 park runs. She's gone on, she's done 10Ks, half marathons. She's run the London Marathon. She's cycled on a tandem to, to Brighton. Exercise has become a really important part of her life. And not just the, the physical side. I've seen her grow in confidence. She feels that she wants to share her experiences. So she's more confident. She's more outgoing. People are, think she's an amazing role model. And when people tell you you're doing something amazing, those messages begin to sink in. And it's made a difference to her life. That's one example. I could tell you about maybe Eileen, a patient of mine with a, a long history of anxiety and, and depression. And she goes through cycles of becoming depressed, anxious, often needing medication, begins to drink, and then spirals downwards, only to completely sort of collapse in a heap, and then gradually pick herself out of the gutter, get things back on track, only to go through another cycle a few months later. So I said to Eileen, when she, she was asking me, what could she do to stop these repetitive cycles happening? And I said, well, do you do any regular physical activity? And she said, no. So again, I invited her down to park run and she came and she did a mixture of walking and jogging round in that very first park run. And she finished with an enormous smile across her face. And again, like Kelly, she's come down week after week after week and gone on to bigger and better things. I was thrilled. She sent me a picture of her finishing the Great North Run. Now, she grew up in Newcastle, so doing the Great North Run was a really special thing for her. And a half marathon was something she could never, never have, have imagined that she would ever do. And, and she did it, and she feels really proud. And for a woman who suffered from low self-esteem and low confidence, that was an amazing achievement. And, and really fascinating, again, and this is why it's hard to measure. She came to see me six months later with another photo of her in Malawi dancing with some kids in a charity project. And I said, well, what's this? And she said, well, with the positive way I feel about myself that's come with doing Park Run, which, which has come with doing the Great North Run as well, I decided to get involved in a charity project. And she said, they've asked me to go for the last eight years. And every year I've turned it down because I knew I'd just get in the way and I'd be useless and I'd be taking somebody else's place. And she said, but I actually thought, no, you can do stuff. You can, you can run the Great North Run. You, could, you can go to a charity project in Malawi. And she did. And she came back buzzing with energy and passion. And she said, I've just done the best thing in my life. I'm committed to this charity project for as long as I can continue to go back every single summer. And I feel I'm really making a difference. Now, that's hard to measure, and that won't come up in a thing you can record or check on a blood test, but that's life-changing. Does it matter that you can't measure it? It doesn't matter to me, because I know it's brilliant medicine, and I know it's the sort of medicine that I care about and I want to practice. But for the powers that be, sometimes or often, we're having to prove that we're value for money and that we're making an impact. And that, I think, can be difficult because the stuff that matters to me, like kindness, 
doesn't feature in the quaff. There's no area of the quaff that says, I was kind to eight people today, or I went above and beyond what an average GP would, would do. We measure the, the, hard, the hard stuff, and we miss out where the value is in general practice. And that, that disappoints me. How do you bridge that? Do you just think, well, I'll, you know, I'll do what I have to do and then I'll do the stuff I want to do? Yeah, <laughs> basically. <laughs> basically. To, to some extent, I, and I suspect many GPs, I think will game the system maybe a little, a little too strong. I don't, I don't cheat. And inevitably, you have to jump through the hoops in order to be able to continue to practice. You have to do the, the CQC stuff. Otherwise, you're out of business. But I do that as quickly and as simply as I possibly can, doing enough to get through. And then I practice the sort of medicine that I believe in. And astonishingly, here I am 25 years later, still in the same room, in the same surgery, seeing the same patients, third, even fourth generations of the same family. So my my job hasn't changed and I can still practice the sort of medicine that I believe in. When I saw you speak, you spoke very passionately about being a GP partner. And I wanted to ask you, even though in that room, people were very inspired. And at the end, they all said they wanted to be a partner. But in the normal day to day, lots of people are stepping away from partnership. Why is that, do you think? I think it's a number of things. I think it's fear of the unknown. I think it's fear of business. I think a lot of registrars, particularly medical students and F1s and F2 doctors, are very wary about a business. They don't feel prepared to go into a business. They don't feel that they have the skills, and they probably don't at that stage, to run a business. And that's a scary mountain to climb for them. I think GP registrars begin to get, hopefully, some training in general practice as a business. And certainly for every GP that I train, I make sure that they understand accounts, they come to accountants meetings, they come to our business meetings, they understand more and more about the business of of general practice. It shouldn't be as daunting as it it is, and we can probably do that better. Outside of your patient care, what does running a general practice look like behind the scenes? Running it is a bit like a mixture of being married and owning a house, I think. So with the marriage thing you're tied to your partners and 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 nowadays you're not tied to a practice indefinitely partners do do leave but it's a long-term commitment that you're chucking in your lot together so as far as that goes it has to do with ensuring that your relationships with your partners in particular are as good as they possibly can be because if you work with people that you're not speaking to not getting on with then life is intolerable and the only thing that keeps me going into the, or one of the things that keeps me going into the practice is I work with a great bunch of people who have similar values to me. We support each other as best as we can. We don't always agree and we don't always get on, but we place a really, really high premium on, on having good working relationships with each other and trying to support each other as much as possible. I've seen so many partnerships split up and it's like an acrimonious divorce. I've seen GPs shredded and sign them off with burnout. And it's like a marriage. It's really, really awful when it goes wrong. But like a good marriage, when it goes right, it can be brilliant. How do you foster those relationships between the partners when it feels like there isn't enough time? 
it's a challenge. It's, it's, it's a real challenge. I think it comes down to priorities. And for me, I think you start with saying this is probably the most important thing at the practice. Because if we don't get on and if we're not working effectively together, then everything else just falls to pieces. So you have to value it. Years ago, when I joined the practice, one of my partners had a really strong sense of fairness. And he said that what unhinges partners and partnership is perceived unfairness that somebody else is sneaking off to the golf course when you're there seeing the patients doing the extra visits. So one thing that we fought really hard for is to try and make sure that the workload is fair, that we see the same number of patients, that we agree what's fair. Every day we meet and we have coffee together, which is unusual, but five days a week we're there having coffee, sharing out the workload, sharing out the visits. It, you know, All of us feel at times that we're doing more than our fair share or picking up the extra work but actually if we're all feeling that then we're probably about right but it's about fairness and, and equity of workload is, is the key to good relationships so I've got my own business and the thought of having a partner I feel like there would have to be a really really long courtship how do you become a partner in a practice I think rather like the, the marriage thing, you, you, you start by dipping your toe in the water and, and having a, a less formal relationship. My practice is just about to take on a new partner. He's an ex-registrar of mine. So I'd known him for three years as a registrar. He spent his last year as a registrar at the practice. He's excellent. He's everything that we want in a partner and he showed great promise. But coming out of GP training, you're still quite raw and you're still very, very early on in your career. He was uncertain about committing anywhere long-term and we were uncertain about how he might cope with the stresses and the strains and the pressures of, of being a partner. So he joined us as a salaried doctor and he's been a salaried doctor with us for three years. And that's allowed us to get to know him, him to get to know us even better, us to begin to give him more responsibility, see how he copes with it and he copes with it really, really well and to embed within the team. And then rather like being in a relationship with somebody, you begin discussions about, you know, are we wanting the same thing from this relationship? We feel we're heading towards talking about partnership. What do you feel about that? Are we on the same, the same wavelength? Do we both want the same things? Do you only have GPs as partners? Uh, yes, we do. Would you open that up? I'm open to thinking about it. And I know certainly at least one practice where the practice manager is a partner. So, so I, I have no objections on principle at all. And I, I can see some value in it. Could I ask, what is the biggest challenge your practice and within your primary care network you are facing today? Three things, recruitment, recruitment and recruitment. It's the massive manpower shortage in general practice. Southport, where I practice, is, is a lovely, beautiful seaside town. It's always been popular with GPs. When I finished my training, I was expecting to spend three or four years touting myself around trying desperately to shoehorn myself into a practice as a, a registrar, as a partner, or as a, a salaried doctor. And the town was awash with, with locums and registrars wanting, wanting to, to stay in the town. Nowadays, you cannot find a GP for love nor money. We're currently advertising for a new salaried doctor, and it's, it's really, really thin, thin pickings. And we would be 
fairly high up in terms of popularity. So at the moment, the GPs aren't there. And that's really terrifying because for me, that one of the things that keeps you going is knowing, well, if it gets too busy, if the workload piles up, well, we'll just get a locum in and, you know, and they can see some of the patients take some of the pressure off. That option has now gone. They're not there or they just don't want it? Uh, they're not there. I think younger GPs don't work in quite the same way that I do. Many young GPs are not wanting to work five days a week, certainly not in, in a single practice. They want more commonly wanting to have portfolio careers or wanting to travel. I think they worry about tying themselves down to a single practice. And that's a real shame. On the panel discussion at the conference, there was, I think her name, was it Sarah? Yeah, it was, yeah. So she spoke about her lifestyle, which sounded amazing, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, foreign travel, yeah, et cetera, yeah. She's travelling, she's doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that. How does that feel when you... That's very different to your life as a GP. Is there room for both in your practice? Absolutely, and we're all different and we all want different things, and that's, that's absolutely fine, and let's, let's embrace that. I wouldn't want a partner who was going off for three or four months a year traveling. That's, that for me isn't what partnership is about. That's not being part of a team. That's not committing yourself to doing the best you, you possibly can with a group of people. But I completely understand that people, particularly when they're younger, when they don't have commitments, when they don't have a family, that ability to travel around the world and, and do exciting things and take new opportunities, then yeah, go, go for it. But at the same time, I'm passionate about the NHS and I want these doctors to be in the NHS and working for the NHS, not going to Australia for, uh, for a year to, to have an amazing time. The NHS, <laughs> you know, the, the NHS need, needs them. Yeah. And, and where are all these brilliant young doctors? You know, come back and join us. I do sometimes wonder whether there should be a kind of a golden handcuff for people who have been trained you know, by the state, five years at medical school, two years as, as foundation doctors. Should you not give five years, 10 years to the NHS? And maybe that's controversial, but, but the state has trained you and has skilled you up to become a really, really good clinician. And maybe you do owe, owe something back. So you discuss kindness and support and values and enjoying your work. Not everybody works in a practice like yours. Not everybody enjoys their work. So why should they be handcuffed? They're getting into a profession that they thought they were going to love and then actually they fell out of love. Why should that person be handcuffed because they've trained? I don't think anybody should be, should, I mean, it should have to do something that's making them miserable. And, and that, that would be a real a real shame. I guess it's, it's just about people feeling comfortable with, with, with what they do and understanding that, that maybe we want something different. Mm. Okay. So could I ask, do you ever look outside of the business of your practice to think about, could we do anything differently? What could we learn from any other industries to help us run our business? I think probably for me, it's the marketing of general practice and the advertising of general practice that we could do so much better. GPs are PhD level moaners. We, myself included, we, we moan a lot. We moan about it and we say it's hard, it's hard work and it's stressful and we're working all the hours that God sends and it's making me miserable. 
And then we end up with a recruitment crisis and then we're surprised. I, I think general practice, as I said, is still an amazing job. It still excites me every morning when I go in. I don't know what I'm going to see. I still find it stretches my mind. I'm constantly thinking and, and wondering and exploring and finding out more and learning stuff. And 25 years in, I'm still, I'm getting better at being a GP. I'm getting better at consulting. And that's brilliant at 54 to actually still be growing for me is, is, is a fantastic, fantastic thing. And I wonder whether we need to be shouting a bit more about that rather than just moaning and then being surprised when people say, well, well, why would I want the piece of that? Could you share with us what you have been doing to support your patients with type 2 diabetes and the massive impacts you have created with that? Okay, so again, this was started by my partner, David Unwin, who is on Twitter at Low Carb GP. And about seven years ago, he began to realize that he could achieve some amazing results in people with diabetes by working with them to reduce their carb intake. So that's partly the sugar intake and then also the starchy carbohydrates as well. He started turning people's diabetes around and he, he shared that with me. And I thought, well, this isn't how I've been taught to manage diabetes for 20 odd years. I've been preaching that the low fat, eat starchy carbs with every meal mantra that the Public Health England have been banging out for, for two decades. But he showed me that his patients were getting better and their HbA1c's were improving, their kind of control was better, they felt better, they were losing weight. And so about six years ago, I started trying it. I started saying to the odd patient, well, listen, you, you, you Blood sugar control is not good, and we could think about starting, as again, lifelong medication, or we could just see how you'd go with cutting out the cereal in the morning. And that porridge with a banana probably has more than 10 teaspoons of sugar in it when it's broken down. Maybe a better breakfast would be full-fat yogurt with some berries and nuts, or maybe an omelette. And I had a, a few patients who tried that. And even four or six weeks later, really, really quickly, their HbA1c's were plummeting. And so all of a sudden, I, I sort of, it was like a light bulb went on for me. And I thought, we can actually make a difference. And for 20 years, I, I just hadn't made a difference to any of my diabetic patients. None of them had improved. And I used to say to them, I'm afraid your diabetes gets worse. And that's just the nature of diabetes. It's a progressive condition I used to trot out. And it will get worse. And no matter what you do, it will get worse. Um, and you just need to go on more and more drugs. And then you'll probably need insulin. But my, my practice is an average practice. It's under 10,000 patients. We've now reversed 73 patients' diabetes, type 2 diabetes. And that's an amazing thing. In my first 20 years of practice, we didn't reverse a single person's diabetes. Nobody had even heard of reversing diabetes. Now we've got 73 type 2 diabetics off medication and with their HbA1c in the normal range. That's an amazing thing. That's just what a, what a turnaround in my career. And that's, that's so exciting to be at the forefront of, of something like that. And it's, it's spreading around the country. There are practices popping up all over the place who are doing it. And it's not that we're special because it turns out when other practices start doing it and reducing people's carbs, they get the same results. Does it only work for type 2? No, no, it doesn't. It works for type 1 as well. And 
traditionally with type ones, we've just said, well, just carry on with your insulin. And if, if you go low, just eat some more carbs. And then when you eat some more carbs, inevitably what happens is you then need more insulin. Your sugars go up. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to increase your insulin. And we get into this ridiculous cycle of eating more and more starchy carbs, taking more and more insulin. I have a friend, a type 1 diabetic, who's become resistant to insulin. Because his insulin dose has climbed so high, it's no longer as effective as it is. And no matter what he eats, he's needing more and more type 1. So he's actually... In, in essence, type one and type two. He's got insulin resistance as well. So I've started talking to my type one diabetics about it and I've got their insulin levels down amazingly. I've got a new type one diabetic who's still on two units of Nova Rapid three times a day. And that's after two years. That's, that's astonishing. And when you look at the stuff coming out of the States, there's a, have you heard of the type one grit program, which is amazing. They're achieving some brilliant results in kids with type 1 diabetes on low or very low carbohydrate diets, whose HbA1Cs are rock bottom. These kids are really, really fit and fit and healthy. And astonishingly, their risk of hypos is really low. So not only are, you know, are they well controlled, but they're not having hypos, which, as you know, is, is, is the thing that you have to really just watch for with the type 1s. I'm going to keep talking about this offline. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. Okay. So that's really helpful. And I think hearing you talk about all the things that you're doing, I suppose, from a marketing perspective, as for a patient, it's like, I wish you were my GP. And I think if I was a clinician, this is the stuff people want to hear. People want to know they're making a difference. So it's fantastic. So a couple more questions before I let you go. What is working really well outside of your management for diabetes and park run? What else is going really well in your practice at the moment? I think what's working well is us as a team. And that's really very exciting. I think as a partnership, we're working really, really well. We respect and value each other. I, I mentioned it before, but I still think that meeting every day for coffee is the cornerstone or important cornerstone of good general practice. In the half an hour, three quarters of an hour we spend with, e with each other each day, we must discuss 10, 12 cases what do you do for this? Where, where would you refer this person? Have you got any ideas? Mrs. Bloggs came to see me. Do you know anything about her? The registrars are there. So they're asking questions. And it's just like doing an amazing piece of, of sort of online research, but just with a group of colleagues informally whilst, whilst chatting. So that, that works really, really well. And it helps to cement those relationships. It helps build resilience to support each other. If somebody's having a crap day, you can say, you know, tell me about your crap day. And I think that's really, really important. The, the trouble is so many practices are busy, so busy that they, they feel they haven't got time to nurture those relationships and they haven't got time to meet for coffee because they're dashing out on the visits and they, they've got to get back for lunch. And actually, again, for us, it needs to be a priority. So when we're looking at the timetable, we always make sure that we've still got time to have coffee together. And my final question is, if in the next five years, or in five years' time, if your practice was to win an award, what would you want that award to be for? I would want it to be for our work in diabetes. I, I, I know I'm, well, I'm blowing my own trumpet, but I guess you're asking me to. I don't think any practice in the UK, and I'd love it if there was one, has reversed as many cases of type 2 diabetes as, as we have 
I'm so proud of the work that we've done in making type 2 diabetes something that you can get rid of, that you can get remission from, and it can resolve. And for many people, not every type 2, but for many type 2s, they can stop being a type 2 diabetic. And that's an, an astonishing gift to, to offer to people. And for those that want it, uh, many, for many of them, that is achievable. Cool. Thank you so much for joining me today. That's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and we hope that you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, we would love it if you left us an iTunes review or if you comment, like and share it on our social media channels. You can find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care and on LinkedIn, just look for Tara Humphrey. So the Business of Healthcare podcast is being brought to you by THC Primary Care. We are a project management company specialising in the development of primary care networks, GP federations and training hubs. If you need support or you are looking for advice on how to progress one of your initiatives, please drop us an email so I can arrange a call with you so we can discuss this further. Our email is admin at thcprimarycare.co.uk. We've been helping primary care networks with their development plans, helping them to make the most of their network meetings, sharing training resources. We've had questions like what do we include in a project plan? We have implemented network-based contracts across GP federations. We also support the day-to-day operational management of training hubs and have also got experience in setting them up from scratch. If we can't help you, we definitely know some people who will be able to help you, so please do get in touch. And that's just to remind you, our email address is admin at thcprimarycare.co.uk or come and find us on www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. And in the meantime, please tune in to the next episode of the Business of Healthcare podcast. <laughs>